Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambutassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambutassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambutassa Uttang dhammang sankhang namasami As usual, I have no idea what to say. <laughs> I think I'd get my act together after all this year. Anyway, um, I hope they win. <laughs> so what I was trying to indicate in that meditation, and hopefully we kind of, when, when we heard the roaring of the crowd, mm-hmm. is that there is movement and stillness. So if you're, if you're contemplating the space of awareness and not caught by, not, not too fascinated or repelled or disgusted or enthralled by the changing nature of our sense experience, then in a meditation like that, you notice that, yeah, there's the roaring of the crowd, which you hear through this window, I think, so it sounded like they were over there. It's just a perception where I think it's down there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Anyway, perception is geographical and so on, but, but there's also that stillness. So there's the roar of the crowd, it arises and ceases, and then the stillness never arose and ceased. It was always there, the awareness is always there. And to me, that's what uh, is most compelling about the human condition. I'm often compelled by my emotions, and my headaches or you know those things draw my attention obviously and, and creative things draw my attention and so I like to make things and do things and, and such like but they're always very ephemeral and they're always very dependent on where I'm at at the moment my resources my time my health da, 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 da. but the stillness is not really dependent on all of that certainly it's easier to to be that stillness if I'm healthy, if I haven't got a migraine headache, uh, if I just if I haven't had an argument with one of the monks or, or something like that. So there are there are human experiences which are very, very compelling and, and draw our attention, need our attention. You know, I have to pay attention to if I'm sick or or there's some discord in the monastery, I have duties and responsibilities in that way. But to me that's more my, my worldly duty. That's my, my sense of service. You know, as, as a human being, I, I think generosity and a sense of service is, is very important for the heart, that I'm not just meditating on my own to get enlightenment, that I, that I have a heart and that generosity is important and service is important. But that kind of altruism that is too idealistic, I've never been too compelled by that. So a service which is reasonable and helpful to the world, but my my own curiosity is always in this ineffable stillness, which is um, I can never uh, quantify or I can never really own as an object, but I can always remember it. It's not the remembering of a, of an experience, or it's not the remembering of a situation or a social relationship or a an old Bob Dylan song. You know, it's, it's not that kind of remembering. It's more a recollecting of something that's always present. So that's where I come from when I try to share what I, what I do. 
the, the two things that I emphasize in this meditation, I, I was talking about focus and space. So consider focus, how we as human beings get focused. So we get focused by excitement. So I'm told the Olympics are happening and is Canada doing okay? Yeah, all right. So there's that kind of focus. You see just human endeavor at its most uh, extreme and you're, you're just you're aghast at what human beings can do, right? So I remember when I watched the, uh, an Olympic competition way back when I was a kid in Toronto. There was a I think a 400 runner, Wilma Rudolph, from American team, and she was like a gazelle, just just beautiful, beautiful runner. So there's that kind of thing that that we focus on because it's so so utterly interesting or exciting. And even each of us has our own preferences for that. Some people like sports, some people don't like sport, some people like classical music, some people like other kind of music, and that's one way that we find focus. And that kind of focus, quite often, if it's very exciting, it helps us to forget about our, the mundane aspects of our life. So people like to take LSD and all kinds of things like that to just forget. And that's focusing in a way which is quite destructive because it does not lead to any kind of real peace. It re- leads to a kind of need for distraction. And our society is very good at compelling our attention in all kinds of ways based on consumerism and excitement. It's very, you can find anything on a, any niche you have, like the internet, you can be constantly compelled by whatever you're doing. So for me, like I was oiling a, a table I just made from oak and with the tongue oil, and I put the tongue oil on, I really like tongue oil, and it worked on maple, and then all this oil kept coming up, every, and kept buffing it, kept coming up, and I looked it up in the internet. Oak, tongue oil, spots. And there it was. There was a solution. And it's amazing now, you know, the kind of information that you can have. And, and I realized that I'm going to have to buff this table for 12 hours every two hours. <laughs> so no more tongue oil on oak. Forget it, I learned. So our society has this tremendously kind of rewarding uh, possibilities of information and, and so whatever whatever you're into you can really, and it's very very helpful it's very, very helpful that way but the downside of that is that one is always finding one's interest drawn by things and one doesn't learn maybe to learn to be just with the ordinary just with the breath or just with heat just 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 with just sort of the very ordinary and so the mind could often need something exciting and interesting to absorb into, to stay alive or attentive or, or not be depressed or whatever it might be. Now, in, in meditation practice, we're taking the, the, the ordinary, like the breath, but just like the heat in the body. I mean, what's more boring than the heat in the body? It's very ordinary, very present. But what we're, tra- what we're emphasizing in awareness <coughs> practice is we're emphasizing the container, not the object. The container rather than the object. Whereas when I'm you know, working with wood and focusing on making a mortise and tenon joint or something like that, I'm, I'm really absorbed into the object and, and I'm really interested and, and I find it fun to do that. And, and I have to be interested or I'll lose my fingers, right? So it's, it's a good investment in focus. But, but that kind of focus is, is very much dependent on the object, right? 
which is necessary and good and interesting, and I'm not, it's not a uh, negation of that, but in, in meditation practice, again, we're, I, at least me, I, I'm more interested in, in the container, because I see in the container as, say, a conscious presence or awareness, I see in that a piece, or notice a piece, which is not dependent on the objects. And because it's not dependent on the objects, it's reliable. And, and because it's so ineffable, it's extremely interesting. The content of awareness, things that come and go, sometimes they're interesting, but sometimes they're, they're not interesting. Sometimes they're frightening and boring and, and uh, upsetting and, and this uncomfortable. Sometimes they're exquisite and beautiful and so on and so forth. So it's dualistic, isn't it? Our, our sense experience is dualistic. But awareness, you notice, is not dualistic. You, there is not like a, a presence that is black and white or good or bad. It's, it's something that is not, does not have a quality. And this, I think, is the, the essence of the spiritual life for me, is this interest in that which is not a quality. And the, the expressive part of my life is qualified. So I teach and I, and I have a shower and I, I work out and, and uh, I answer my emails and all that. Those are all qualitative kinds of things. Sometimes I do it well, sometimes I don't do it well, and so on. But if that's the only way that I get fulfillment as a human being, then I'm pretty much on a treadmill of always needing to get the kind of qualities that I find to be fulfilling, and then resisting or fighting or struggling or regretting all the qualities which I do not find fulfilling. To me, that's endless. And as I'm getting older, it's getting even more endless. Because my, my capacity to to live a, a vibrant life and, and all of this. It's going to get less and less. Nobly knees and, and memory systems fall, falling apart or whatever. But awareness is, is not an object. So what we do in meditation is we take something very ordinary and we try to develop a sense of presence without comment. And, and there's a teaching to a, uh, an ascetic called Bahia. And, and Bahia was, a, many of you who are familiar with Theravada Buddhism, Bahia was an ascetic who thought he had attained to realization. And then he, someone suggested, you know, actually, you haven't got attainment. Go check out the Buddha. He has probably some good teaching for you. And, and Bahia gets a teaching from him where he says to Bahia, Bahia, you should train thus. In the scene, there should be just the scene. In the herd, there should be just the herd. In the sense, there should be just the sense. In the cognized, there should be just cognized, just the cognized. So, so he's suggesting to be here, train this way. And this is important Buddhism, that Buddhism works, I think, if it's, if it's not just left as a belief. It doesn't work. It, it can be a helpful set of tools as belief systems, but it doesn't really liberate the mind. It just puts your mind in a fairly a good pattern where you don't, do too many foolish things. It doesn't really, really liberate the mind. Where what really liberates the mind is, is practices, practices of reflection. And, and so the texts and monks and nuns and so on, lay teachers were always suggesting practice, practice, practice. And so this was the practice that he suggested to Bahia in the scene that we just seen. And so that is something that you can do, but it's not, it's still a kind of focus but it's on the ordinary. So if I if I just look at the bell, in the scene there's just the scene. Now to do that, 
I have to let go of the commentary. It's a bell. Uh, it's OBS bell. It's a nice bell. It's a good bell. I love that bell. Whatever bell. But before I say bell, um, before I make any definition about it, I can just see it. In the scene, it's just a scene. And to do that, I just have to let it become conscious. And that's something I have to do rather than believe in. And what happens if I do that, if I do that, and I make no comment about it, my mind touches silence. Very simple. Because it's not about the bell, it's about the quality of attention. So in the scene, there's just the scene. Now, if I want something out of that experience of looking, not just the scene, I want some experience called enlightenment or peace or even stillness. So I'm looking at, well, so where's the stillness? Huh? Where's the stillness? That's not in the scene, it's just the scene. It's me wanting something. So my, my viewing of the bell has no agenda in it. I don't have the agenda. Trouble is, Buddhism has all these really high states that you read about, and Bahiyak does get enlightened. He is reputed to be the, the one that got the quickest enlightenment. So because from that, from I'll, I'll go on and explain it, but he is reputed to have the quickest enlightenment. So, so you read that thing, okay, if I just look at this, I'll get enlightened. Right? <laughs> Which is delusion. So in the scene, there's just the scene. No, no sense of self, no, just, just that and doing. And what, in that kind of doing, if you uh, allow yourself to, to do that, you see that the sense of the doer falls away. You have to wait. You have to wait. You have to let it happen. Because you're looking and so you, you start to just practice with something like in the scene is just the scene. And there's a kind of waiting. And but no commentary. And that's very important. You're no longer the judge, the analyst, the whatever. No agenda trying to get something, getting rid of something. Just just the purity of that. And the scene is just the scene. And the mind begins to realize silence without a doer. There's no ego there. Because ego is something, personality is just something that comes and goes according to thought and emotions and things like that. And now you're beginning to touch something that's very pure. In the herd, there's just the herd. And I, I use that a lot, right? When I, when I start the meditation, I just listen. Now, if you are listening in order to get some experience called peace, then you're already grasping sound with desire. But this is not desire, it's just you know, let it come, like so the language I use, let it come to you, receptive awareness, be the knowing. It's like this, this is the common language. And again, to, to allow that to happen, you have to practice it, so you just listen. Wait. And then the silence again. And no self, no self in that. In the herd, in the sense, there's just a sense. So, just the breath, or just heat, like like I use heat, and that is very very ordinary. But now you're using the ordinary to come to the container. So, and it's just like this. So, like heat is typically like for me, it's uncomfortable, it's sticky, and uh, so I do everything beforehand to try to get it cool. But then when it sits there, it's heat's like this. Now, if it was Harmful, then I, you know, put an ice cube in my head or something like that. It's not harmful. So it's just, so now I'm just the experience of heat. Now, if I have desire, like if I'm really uh, very sensitive to heat, then it's more difficult. 
because now it's a kind of threat to my physical health, and I have to have to listen to that. Or if I'm habitually always able to get away from discomfort, this kind of practice becomes very difficult. Or if the if the sound that I'm listening to is in some way unpleasant, it's more difficult. Right. So, but typically, say if you're doing if you're on a retreat and you get the loud breather next to you, you know the person that has wants to do pranayama next to you. It's crazy. Nuts. <laughs> right? And then you can see, okay, so the herd there is just the herd. That's more difficult. Why is it more difficult? Because there's a desire to be, have sound a certain way. To have sound to be uh, in a way which isn't intruding. And, and one can certainly you know, poke the person or tell the teacher or whatever. But having done all of that, Life is, you know, sense experience is, is very uh, dualistic, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So then you have a more, uh, more interesting challenge. In the herd, there's just the herd. But now you have not just the herd, you also have your emotional reaction to something unpleasant. Now can you do that exercise with that which is unpleasant? It's, it gets you kind of up the ante, because now, not only is there sound, there's the emotional response to the sound, which is aversion. And aversion, uh, of course, the way we deal with aversion is we get rid of that which is breathing loudly. So you put a pillow over the guy's head and <laughs> or something. <laughs> no, it's against precepts. So you, you, you see the aversion, and now what, what happens to us? Well, usually it's very hard to see aversion as aversion. Why? Because we, maybe we're very idealistic. You know, I should really spread metta to his deep breathing. So you get very kind of silly about it, or whatever, or, or you feel self-righteous. It's not fair, you know. Two years I've been waiting to do this retreat, and I get this idiot next to me. So that's attachment. So now, no longer is there in the scene, there's just the scene, or in the herd, there's just the herd, or in the cognized, there's just the cognized. But there's the arising of a sense of a personality, a sense of a self. So it's no longer just sound. It's that guy's sound is interrupting my meditation. But the practice remains the same. The cognize is just the cognize. So now you get something a bit more difficult to practice with. Anger is this way. And just to be, just to be averse to something, you know, oh, anger feels this way. In the averse, there's just the averse. Keeping precepts, not using the pillow, <laughs> just knowing. Now, now the knowing is very hard because now desire has come in and the desire wants life to be a different way. Not that desire is wrong, not that you can't say something to the person, but inevitably that's the way life is, that our desires do not get fulfilled. So if our whole strategy of life is to get our sense experience one which fulfills our desires, then, we are, then, then it's endless. It's just constant rebirth mm-hmm. into sense experience. So the aversion arises with the sound, and the sound is just the sound, and the hearing is just the hearing now, and the cognize is just the cognize. Now you have an emotional response. Now if you can bear with that, and begin to see, well, the stillness is actually still there. Even within anger, there's the stillness, because there's a knowing. And the knowing is not an emotion. And the knowing is not a personality. Your personality, it's interesting personality, isn't it? You know, we all experience different personality types, you know, like, as we joke, the committee that comes through consciousness. But you can never find the person. It's really odd, isn't it? You, can, you try to find the person called Vera Dhamma. 
he, it is nothing. There's only awareness. But there is Virodhamo as angry or Virodhamo as excited or whatever. There's these different qualities of personality that come and go. But the stillness can know even that. And you can see that's much more challenging, much more difficult. But if you can do that, if you can do that, then the, the emotional triggers that are triggered by life, rather than being things which constantly draw you into the content, you use them to come back to the container, to the space, to the openness, to the awareness. And you have to make determinations to do that. So if I'm, you know, like let's say you're on a retreat and you get the, the, the kind of heavy breathing person, you decide, well, I'm going to use that for my practice, then and you go, and then you go into the meditation hall already before you're entering the meditation. You're always anticipating. Oh God, there he is already. I know you're going to get fired. No, this is anticipation. And in the cognizer is just the cognize. So what you're trying to come to is a kind of pure attention, constantly pure attention to the way things are, without all the additions of thought and ego and self, complicating it. And you start with simple things, very simple things non-threatening, neutral, and you kind of, you get good at that. So the breath, we say the breath, or heat, or anything, posture, uh, just sound, anything works. And then you try to apply that to those areas where you get overwhelmed. And that's not saying that you never feel anger, because you do, or you never feel, because you do, or you never feel lost, but you do, that's just nature, it's just nature, there's nothing wrong with it. But your interest now is no longer in kind of a perfect emotional performance every day, or some kind of you know, deeply loving relationship with the universe 24-7. <laughs> His life doesn't work that way. I don't know about you. I rarely have a deeply loving relationship with the whole universe. Every now and then. But mostly it's just ho-hum. It's, sort of, it's hot. Yeah? But the silence... You know, the silence is always there. It's always there. It's always a possibility. The progression on the path always brings you back to the same place. This is the curious thing about it. So, my own sufferings with fear and anxiety or anger have always brought me back to the same place of stillness. The struggle I've had with, with my own karma and my own ego things and so on has been individual. But as I've noticed them and noticed how I got caught by them and worked, just be aware. Just be aware of this person. So I'm sitting in the meditation hall and the person is breathing loudly. I'm going to use that to track the practice, this teaching to Bahia. In the herd, there's just the herd. And I've set up uh, a mind which is going to use this situation to train the mind into non-reactivity. So... Well, of course, what happens is the first thing is the mind starts to react. But now I'm doing, oh, reactivity is just reactivity. I keep to the silence, I keep to the knowing, I keep to the awareness. And maybe I put into it, what's the changing nature of that feeling? Now I have a really strong, different kind of perception to this person who is breathing loudly. And I'm training the mind. And I think all of us have done this, where you train the mind and it's neutral. You kind of get to a place, yeah, it's loud, but it's sort of not a problem. It's just in the sound, there's just the sound. In the hearing, just the hearing. And that's rather marvelous, because now you have taken a step towards transcendence, or stillness, or silence, rather than taking a step back into the habits of 
judgmentalness and, and, and aversion and all the other things. But that's very difficult. It's very difficult to bear with unfulfilled desire. It's very difficult to bear with these habits that we have. But I don't see any other way to do it. And so we, you know, there's a huge recommendation. Be patient. Take it on. Learn from it. Uh, take it on as difficult. Take it on as your curriculum. And there's a great sense of confidence that, and, and well-being that arises in that. Because even that thing which has tended to overwhelm me, I've been able to be aware of. If, I, however, I say that I should be able to overcome this, or I shouldn't have this feeling, or I should have another feeling, that's setting yourself up for disaster. Because then you go into the situation which, with an agenda of desire. Now our desire is not to get rid of it, but it's more like a desire to stay with it and not grasping. And that you do through letting go of thought. Because you could see how it takes something like, like a, very, a very good one to train with for those of you who meditate regularly is, is the end of the sitting. If you're, if you're used to sitting for half an hour, I always sit here for 45 minutes. Then if you're used to half an hour, usually by 25 minutes, you start to think, when is this going to end? Your body's conditioned that way, right? And your mind's been conditioned, right? So after 25 minutes, you start to get anticipation. If you have a lot of pain, it'll start after five minutes. <laughs> but you start to get anticipation. So if you're using Bahia's training, you say, oh, in the scene, there's just a scene. In the cognizer, oh, this is anticipation. And you try to be with that without thought. Without thought. Thought like, I shouldn't anticipate. I should just bear it. That's thought. When is it going to end? When is it going to end? That's thought. But anticipation as anticipation is like this. Silence. And that's obviously more difficult. But if you train yourself, you get really good at it. You say, oh yeah, I know you. And you're just like this. And then your reference is the stillness rather than the object. And then you find that you get through the restlessness. If you have to move, you move. But then your meditation is really deepened now. It's deepened not just to 45 minutes rather than half an hour. It's not, it's not like time zones. Like you get brownie points for 45 minutes. It's rather that extra 15 minutes, you, you've been with something which has grabbed your attention and you've learned not to grab it and you've taken refuge in awareness. And that kind of deepening of stillness and awareness is not just about the sitting meditation because that's going to serve you anytime you have anticipation. So a little lesson on anticipating the end of the sitting the restlessness you get, where you look at the clock, where you feel tight, and, and that becomes a, a lesson in anticipating uh, an operation at the hospital, or anticipating a difficult in-law that's coming for dinner, or a difficult a job interview, because it's the same, it's the same mindset, and now you have a refuge. You can, you can take the anticipation and do something with it, so you can prepare and so on and so forth, but now you have a refuge which is not the emotional body which is not the energy body, which is not thought. It's the stillness which knows all of this. And to me, that's the, that, that is what spirituality is about. You know, that's what the, the path of Nibbana is about. It's referring to that. So Bahia, going back to him, and, and when Bahia, in the scene there's just the scene, in the herd there's just the herd, in the sense there's just the sense, in the cognized there's just the cognized, then Bahia, there would be no here, no there, and no in-between. 
And this is the way in our text we talk about the end of the ego. Because no here, no there, no in between is pure presence. Not a me being present, not a doer, not a becomer, but just pure presence. And, and so this is the way the Buddha defined enlightenment in that, in that very short sutta. It's a very short sutta. And Bahia got it. And uh, this incident took place on alms round. And then the monks continued alms round. And when they came out of the village, outside the city gates, the town gates, Bahia was lying outside the gates. He was dead. He got gored by a bull. And uh, so the monks said, what should we do with Bahia's body? And the Buddha said, venerate his body, venerate his ashes, burn the body, venerate the ashes, because Bahia attained enlightenment. And so in the text it says he's the quickest. You know, he's the Usain Bolt. So he, because, because it's a very, very direct path, that one. In the scene is just the scene, in the herd is the herd. So the question then is like, why, why can't I do that? Well, because desire doesn't want me to do it. And desire is difficult. If I feel restless, desire is saying, get out of here, move, man. Go have a sandwich. You know, whatever. Or, or uh, tell them, yeah, tell them off. Or, or, ah, yeah, two more hours of TV, that'll be right. You know? <laughs> so desire is, is an energy, it's a strong energy, which is constantly pulling us into sense experience. It's not right or wrong, it is as it is. And what we're doing is very much against nature in that way. You know, we're going against nature's pull, but not in a repressive way, because we're now something, we're interested in something which is transcending natural animal impulses. We have a feral cat who comes around every year, and I don't like this feral cat because it's killing the birds and chipmunks. I have a preference. I like my chipmunks. Uh, it's a beautiful cat. It's a white cat. I don't like the cat. <laughs> and, and that's my perception but the cat has tremendous focus it is, a, it is an incredible hunter right? it doesn't have wisdom it's driven by its animal nature we have animal nature right? we have all kinds of biological energy that are driving us but we're not, we don't have to be victims of that because we have this capacity to reflect like I don't, you know, I don't grab the cat and give him the eight precepts <laughs> you know, you will be celibate now. Just don't leave those chipmunks alone. I don't think it's going to compute. So we have that. You know, we have we're biological beings, but we're also kind of like divine beings in the sense that we have this interesting, interesting thing of being able to not only feel anger, but know we feel anger. Not only be compelled to follow the anger, but say, well, is that going to be useful? Is that going to be skillful? And then also, we have the capacity to be aware of awareness. Which is really neat. I don't know about you. Like, I can be aware of that and say, wow. But there's also awareness. It's not just the bell. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and that's, that's the, I think that's the interest that we have as, 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 as the spiritual part of ourselves. The biological part, yeah, we, we function within that too. And that's not, neither right nor wrong. All right, I'll leave that for your reflection. Andamayam damagataya sadhu karantaramase sadhu sadhu sadhu.
Any questions or comments or thoughts around that? You spoke about the desire for self. How would you define the desire for non-self? Well, the way we put it is the end of suffering. So when we suffer, there's something in us which doesn't want to suffer. And the usual program that's recommended is to get some objective experience which will distract your suffering. What the Buddha is saying, well, your suffering is embedded in, in a misunderstanding. And that misunderstanding is you take this whole experience personally. And so it approaches it through, you know, like, like in, in modern terms, we say he's you know, got a big ego and so on and so forth. And that, that very self-thing, self-making of, of all that, when you really observe, I think all of us are just fed up with it. We're tired of it. You know, we're tired of the inner tyrant telling us, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good. Or we're tired of always being judgmental. Or, or we're always tired of, oh, yet another distraction. There's something in us, we call it nibida, a kind of sense of enough already. Isn't there something else? And I think that's a, a maturity in human consciousness, right? Where we say... It's not a rejection of, of, of anything, really. It's a more a kind of interest. I think a lot of the interest or desire or, or yearning or passion for spiritual life comes in, in realizing the limitations of thought and, and seeing that the production of self is, is a whole thinking process. Sometimes this passion for enlightenment or whatever you call it um, and it is, it is a passion, you know, it is something that you're curious about. It comes from your personal, like an epiphany, you have some, that's, for me, that was very much the reason. As a child, I had experiences of deep silence, and then later, so, so it comes from having touched something which is different, profoundly different. It's not just, uh, you know, maple walnut ice cream cone kind of thing. <laughs> and that, that stays with you for at least one lifetime. You cannot deny it. So there's that. Sometimes it's through the touching of a person, like Ajahn Chah, for me. Just you touch someone, and or they touch you in some way which is so profound, you think, I want that. <laughs> and it's not a gold medal. There's something about, about their being. And so you really listen to them. And then when you suffer, they say, well, look at it this way. Because all of us want to get out of suffering. You know, it's just so, that's where our desire is coming from. You know, we want to get out of suffering. And actually, we're just following desire, but now we're realizing the end of desire. So rather than settling for compensations, we're going for, the, for, for something which is tran- transcendent. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it comes from reading a book, doesn't it? Yeah, from, from different ideas. Quite often it comes from you just, you get stuck in your own mind through some aversion or some depression, you just don't know how to get out of it. And, and, you, and then someone gives you the tools. You know, this, this is the way you can, and, and, oh, yeah, yeah. And then you start to, sometimes it comes from, like, uh, death in the family. You know, you've been jolly, jollying along, everything's going well, and then, bang. You know, wow. So everything, everything you've done before becomes shallow and uh, uninteresting. So it, it's, it's a couple of character, I suppose, and, and, and many, many, many factors. But I think my take on it, I'm very optimistic, we are made for enlightenment, my sense of it, because we have desire, and I don't think that desire is going to be appeased or whatever you want until we realize 
that we are not this mind and body, that there's a deep silence behind that. So I, I mean, that's what I reckon, rather than we were all kind of hopeless cases with whatever, whatever. Yeah. So I'm very optimistic that way. But then I'm a monk. <laughs> Sometimes you see the world news, you don't think that. Right? So, so that, that can be a pretty depressing. And so, but there's something in us which, for sure, us here, you know, we yearn. We yearn for something deeply meaningful. Yeah, um, so the practice that Bahia, that Bahia, yeah. Bahia uh, would have uh, told him, um, so, uh, and so I'm just thinking, because sometimes you, you, when you're meditating, you know, a, a thought comes up and you're aware, okay, there's doubt or there's whatever, and, and not judging and just being with it, whatever. Um, and you're aware of it, so that's what I'm understanding what he's saying, right? Mm-hmm. So, but then sometimes you get like it seems like a hundred, hundred of them at once, and so you know, how do you be with a hundred of them? Like, you just pick one or the strongest one? <laughs> well, I think there's a, there's a kind of for me, there's kind of a three, three steps that happen. One is thought and narrative, and something in you awakens to that. Wow, I'm really off beam here, a hundred times, whatever. And then there's the intention to be more aware of the body. To me, that seems pretty fundamental of moving away from thought into the body. That's a kind of training that I've had a lot of. But not to get rid of anything, just to know this moment as an energy experience rather than as a narrative so once I can get to that, once I can get to the body, then I can also say, and this is in awareness. And then the mind can open. So there's the tension, which is created by an event or a bunch of events, and that produces thought, produces a sense of self, personality, memory, so on. And then something in me says, whoa, I'm really upset. You know, really kind of notices it. And that's the reflective capacity. If you don't have that, then you just have to run the treadmill for the rest of your life. So people who don't have a reflective mind or who are so injured by life, it's very difficult for them. So then you train in ordinary ways, like one, one at a time stuff, you train to have bodily awareness more and more and trust in that. And you get good at that. It's kind of like in the scene, it's just the scene. So as the bodily awareness becomes more a natural turning to, then, then you endure the energy bodies going through this difficulty, and then more and more you say, yeah, but what's, what's not tense? Or where's the space? Or be the knowing? <laughs> okay. So body awareness for me is, is very, very helpful. But sometimes you just have to scream, I think. <laughs> scream or cry or do, do something. Have a maple walnut ice cream. <laughs> That's okay too. Yes. Um, in your teaching, one of the things that's been really valuable is when I feel anxiety is to say, "This is what anxiety feels like." Right. And to be with that. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me, if I could be more reflective, like when when you said, "This is anticipation." Uh-huh. This is, I don't. I seem to have difficulty. With that, I go right to the emotion, 
and then it seems to be, okay, this is what anxiety feels like, and then, okay, well, there it is again. But, you know, I'm not getting any... Can you do that? It's, this is in awareness. So get out of the narrative, you can do that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I can feel it. And yeah, I can okay. Manage. Then see if you can just say, well, one of the things I do, it's just a, it's a weird one, I just kind of came apart this year, what's not hot? So what's not anxious? Yeah. And, and then and that takes you to awareness. So then in, in, in Buddhism, you have many ways to do this, like to say, who's anxious? And there's no person that's anxious, it's just awareness. Or, so what, I, what I've been using is, well, what's not hot? And it's always the space within heat, heat coming and going. Or, or this is in awareness. So if you can get some kind of a suggestion from your readings or whatever that brings you to that, that sense of the container rather than the object. Because the trouble, even with body awareness, is we're still preoccupied with yes, it. Exactly. You know, there's still a need to do something about it or sort it out and so on. So there's still attachment to the kandhas. But if we're lost in thought, it's even more insidious because we just fuel this thing even more intensely. So you kind of get out of the narrative, you see the energy body, and then this is in awareness or what's not tense. I found that kind of, you know, it just came across. It really works well. It's not, not logical, of course. You wouldn't want that. <laughs> so it, it's also a question of language. That works for me. It might not work for you. But now language is not just descriptive or analytical or, or that. It's like a language which, which reminds you of something you, you already know. So is there some part of your life that you come to spacious awareness naturally? It might be nature. It might be beauty. Beauty can do that. Like I was looking at the sunflowers. And I was just, you know, I found them very beautiful. And I was just letting the beauty create a kind of empathy. Beauty has this kind of capacity that we, ha- we have the ability to empathize. And empathy we usually see in relation to people who are maybe uh, suffering. But empathy is also like a capacity to, to connect to beauty. Because if I'm just caught up with, oh, I can get some seeds from a bird for that. If I planted, <laughs> I'm just caught up in thought. But if I let that come to me because it's attractive, but now I'm no longer wanting to own the sunflowers, I just let the attraction bring me to a sense of space. Oh, beauty, empathy, and then there's the, there's the silent space. So anyways, you can get to that and then remind yourself of that when you feel anxiety. This is the way usually it works. You, you have some insight around something which is actually quite simple, but that insight is more than, than the experience. It's something profound about how consciousness works, and then you apply that to the complicated. So I take, I take sound, sight, in the scene, it's just the scene, her, just the herd, and just, ah, and this is in awareness. So try that. Try sound, listen, and then say, what's not sound? Or, this is in awareness, and get a sense of the stillness. Or, notice movement, it's another way, anicca, you notice the movement. But to notice the movement, there must be stillness. If I'm commenting on the movement, I'm not noticing the movement. I'm thinking. So to notice the movement, there must be stillness. And then apply that to the anxiety. So maybe you look at anxiety as something that's changing. But it's very hard because, you, you know, anything unpleasant, we have this agenda of getting rid of it. I will be aware of you if you drop dead. 
basically, right? So the, all the emphasis, like, like Sajjan Sumedho's phrase, it all belongs. So he uses two phrases. You know, I, I use them again and again. It's like this, and it all belongs. So it's like this is the focus in the moment, and it all belongs that not grasping. But when, when we have anxiety or, or these things, they're so unpleasant, and we've been so conditioned to reorganize them into a different pattern or whatever, it's, it's quite... But if you keep at it, you keep at it, it, it is less and less deluding. And you think about it, if, if, you, if you understand anxiety, you've probably understood 50% of your emotional suffering. Yeah? Because we only have a few, really. <laughs> they manifest a million ways, but so you, get, you get one, you get 50% of the work done. <laughs> it's a good deal. 